Welcome to Function. I'm Anil Dash. If you're like me, the end of the year puts you in a little bit of a reflective mood. And I tend to think a lot about whether I'm doing enough. Am I helping? And really, at a fundamental level, am I giving enough? And for some people, it might just be, can I give enough to get a tax break next year? But whatever your motivation, technology can actually change the way that we give. It can help us be more generous. It can help us be more thoughtful in how we give. And we're going to talk to some of the people who don't just enable us to give through technology, but they make it easier, more efficient, more part of our everyday lives. And that's transformative when we compare it to the old process of dragging out the checkbook and trying to give somebody a gift. Later, we'll hear from Tiffany McKell and Dr. Courtney Ziegler. They created an app called Appalition that allows users to automatically donate their spare change to help people who can't afford bail. People are often incarcerated and held in jail, even for tiny offenses, and then they can't make bail, and it leads to a whole series of problems that affects their entire lives. But first, we're going to hear from Tiffany Bell. Tiffany's the co-creator of The Human Utility, and it's a simple website that lets you pay utility bills for people in need. It keeps their water running. Tiffany, welcome. Thanks for having me, Anil. I'm happy to have you anytime because The Human Utility, I'm a big fan, you know, from day one of what you do. Can you explain to folks what it is that Human Utility does in the world? Yeah, so basically The Human Utility is a crowdfunding campaign that was put together to help people originally in Detroit and Baltimore with their water bills because when people couldn't afford their water bills in these particular cities, instead of helping them, the cities would just shut their water off. And it didn't matter what the issue was. They could be someone who had just lost their job or was going through chemo and they would turn people's water off. So all we did was just basically build a website to find people who needed help with their water bills and originally match them to people who wanted to give $5 or in some cases $5,000 to help people with their water bills. The sense of almost direct person to person. I can see this person that has a water bill that needs to be paid and I can feel like I'm the one that's making that happen and helping them. That's It's very visceral. It's very immediate. But can you talk at a bigger level about the issue of water security, about what it is to not be able to have clean water and and who's affected by it. We have seen in the United States the issue of like Flint having water that you basically can't drink because it's polluted um, because for some reason Michigan can't get its act together with water. But there's this other issue where people can't afford water, but it's actually drinkable. So there's places like Detroit, Baltimore, but there's also like Tulsa, New Orleans, Oklahoma City that have been listed as places that have had shutoffs at levels just as bad as Detroit. Thousands of Detroit water customers are at risk of having their water turned off. Now, if you live in the city... Water companies, especially the the public-run ones, don't get as much federal funding as they used to, and so they have to do things like make improvements to pipes and other infrastructure based off of just money that they make from revenues. And what that means then is they have to keep raising rates to go along with different changes that they have to make to keep up with things like federally imposed water quality regulations and whatnot. And again, since they don't get any federal money to do that, they have to go and change prices on customers. And in a lot of places like Detroit and Baltimore, we're not exactly, those aren't exactly places that are swimming in jobs and people that are demographically um, in the highest levels of income in this country. And so what happens is those people can't afford these changes, these changes in price. Data shows like in Detroit, for example, they've had water and sewer rate increases every single year for the last 10 years at least. And again, that translates to people not being able to afford their bills. And 
these are public water companies, taxpayer funded, and that's what happens to people. And this is a crisis that is kind of lurking in the shadows, but it's going to become worse as, again, we continue to not invest in infrastructure in this country. One of the things is that we learned in the course of doing this work is that Water is tied to a whole lot of other things that if you don't have water, a bunch of other terrible things can start happening. So in pretty much every place in this country, when you don't have basic utilities in a house, that house can be declared unfit for habitation. And so in this instance, when you have kids in a house like that, that means that those kids actually legally shouldn't be living there because technically that's the definition of child neglect. They're living in a place that's unfit for habitation. And so we've seen and met people whose kids have been taken away because they didn't have water in the house. And again, that's just on top of things like not being able to do laundry, not being able to flush your toilet, not being able to wash your hands and whatnot. So people start living in really undignified and just literally families being broken up kinds of ways. It's pretty bad. So... How did you find out about this? I mean, I, I literally read about it on Twitter. I wake up every morning and just like scroll through Twitter for news stories and whatnot. And what was it like a Thursday morning back in July 2014? I read about what was happening with like 100,000 people in the Atlantic saying that they were going to have to live without running water because they couldn't afford the water bills. And I just like decided something should change about that. So most folks, you read an article like that. This is this tragedy that's happening and they feel depressed, they feel powerless, they feel upset, they certainly care, but you did something. So what was that moment? What was that inspirational moment where you sort of, you see a story that says these people are going to be cut off and they're not going to have access to water. You can understand what the impact is going to be on their lives. And you think, I can do something about this. What did that look like? What happened? I mean, well, I didn't know any of the stuff that we know now about, like, people losing their houses and their kids and, you know, all the other stuff that happens. I just I was working in City Hall in Atlanta at the time. And the first thought in my mind was like, knowing what I know, I just kind of started thinking what kinds of things had to happen in Detroit for them to decide, you know, even if you can't afford your water bill and we can demonstrate that you can't afford it, we're still going to turn you off. And it just kind of pointed to a bunch of really bad decisions that people were making And it was just like, I feel like we could do something about that. So my co-founder and I, Christy Tillman, built the website to find people because it just, it kind of came down to like, you know, if you think about it, most people didn't owe that much money in the grand scheme of things as far as like, like the average amount we help people with now is $300. And if you think about it, for most people, especially like in tech and different industries we work in, that's not a lot of money to come up with. But for people that are like, you know, between jobs and have been for a while, that is a lot of money. So we just kind of said, you know, we can throw away a hundred bucks in a weekend at a series of bad restaurants or something here in San Francisco. So why not put that kind of money toward (laughs) donating towards someone's water bill? But of course, you know, both of us had huge Twitter following. So we tweeted about doing it and the entire internet came down and wanted to do the same thing. So that's kind of how we got started. So a lot of us can have that that aha moment of saying, wow, it'd be great if we could pay somebody's bill. But that's not the same thing as actually enabling it to happen. What did you have to connect together in order to make it possible for us to pay somebody's water bill for them? I mean, so that was a process, first of all, of just like, I was poking around on the water company in Detroit's website and found a 400-page PDF that they had, supposedly of businesses and residential customers who they couldn't deliver the bills to by mail. And for some reason, they just posted them to the website. And the only thing that was missing was the name. So they had their mailing addresses, how much they owed, I believe, and 
their account numbers. And so at that time, the way the site was set up was that you could just take an account number and plug it into the website. It would show you everything about that account, except in most cases, the name of the customer. It would show you everything as far as like, you know, how much they owed, their previous billing and payment history, their consumption history. So again, the first insight we had was what if we just got the account numbers of people who owed money and we just got their stories and just, you know, allow people to come in and just pay as if they were that person. So what we did is we basically set up the site to find people who needed the help. They told us their story and whatnot, gave us their account number. We verified a bunch of different things about their situation, like how much they owed and, and stuff like that. And then people would come in and say, I want to pledge 50 bucks. And so what we would do then is we would send them directions and an account number as far as how to go to that website and pay as if they were that person. And then they would give us the confirmation number back. And that's pretty much how the whole process ran. So we paid like 100K in bills in like 30 days just doing that. We had a team of volunteers from Twitter as well. And we just would email people the directions and match people up and that kind of thing. Everything was done basically in a Google spreadsheet. So the first version of this is just a Google spreadsheet where you're matching almost like the the have a penny, take a penny thing at a convenience store. Exactly. And what was the scale of that? When you Just in that sort of first version, you said $100,000 was pledged? Well, that was, that's what we actually collected. So there was probably somewhere around three to $400,000 that was pledged. We had some problems as far as the city taking that funding and whatnot. But again, yeah, the first 30 days was $100,000 worth of bills that were paid for people. It was pretty cool because, again, it's also something I didn't expect people to do, honestly. Because if you think about it, it's kind of weird for someone to pay someone else's water bill. But people totally did it because I think they saw just like, you know, if you think about just being in an apartment building and your water is shut off for the first two hours of the day or something, you can't bathe or whatever. It's a real, it's a serious inconvenience. So just think about having to live that way. I think people saw that and wanted to just pile in. You built really what was a prototype, but it got a couple hundred thousand dollars of bills paid. And then you decide to sort of make this a real thing, right? You're going to make it formal and make this what you do. Talk about that process. How did you go from this sort of aha moment and a Google spreadsheet being shared online to we're going to take this and make it a you know, something that's designed and intentional and has an organization behind it. Yeah. So again, that was, so I'll go back and I'll say a lot of the things that we did at the very beginning were not intentional things. And this was not meant to be like in in an entire organization, at least not originally. But the more we learned about the scale of the problem and we kept getting people that needed help and whatnot, it became very clear that we had to keep doing this work. And so I had a fellowship in another organization that was a year-long thing when I started this. But the same weekend that that fellowship ended, we were funded by Y Combinator. And Y Combinator is one of the sort of most influential and and well-regarded investors in Silicon Valley. Exactly. And so they they also have an interest in, you know, funding nonprofits that are like tech based in some way. So they, they immediately saw that, you know, hey, you could use tech to improve the situation for people who can't afford their water bills. And again, we just were able to to make it a full-time thing from that funding. And so I've been doing this full-time now since, let's see, January 2015, basically. So what was your path to this? What were you doing before and what did you study that you became a person that would create 
something like the human utility and be paying people's water bills? I started programming when I was six, but also wanted to be a cartoonist. (laughs) And so didn't think of it as a career choice originally until I took a programming class in high school and then saw that, yeah, that's actually a thing you can go to school for. So I went to Howard University for computer science. I finished in 2008, started another company that didn't work out very well after that, then also worked for a family member of mine doing Rails and iOS development and then um, had a fellowship at Code for America, um, which is a, a nonprofit based in San Francisco that helps cities with technology as far as like how they, at that time at least, as far as like using technology to improve service delivery to citizens. And I started this whole thing during that, um, but it was not a project of, of the organizations. Um, but again, I just, I've always had an interest in building things that were useful to people. You know, I, I kind of laugh at like tap and fetch it apps or like photo filters and things like that. I mean, they have their place in the world too, but I think a lot of technologists don't spend a lot of time looking at how technology can help everyday people. And I feel like that's the only interest in it that I have. Like, how can we use, you know, some of the same technologies that power Facebook to help people with their water bills or improve, you know, people's ability to access other services that they might need. And that's what my interest in this has totally been. Like I get to use all of the all of the, you know, the skills that I sat in class for as far as, you know, all the calculus classes and all of the different uh, programming classes I took during college to actually help people. And that's really rewarding for me. Do you feel like you're part of a bigger wave of technology that's trying to do good or of, you know, different apps or tools that are trying to help people be charitable and and help others? I think so. I I like to think that we kind of like help people see what's possible and just kind of think a little bigger than like, what's the next startup we can start just to get rich? I mean, that's that's great. But I think we're a good example of what you can do with the same kinds of technologies in order to actually help people. What's your favorite story of somebody who's been helped by the human utility? Probably ones that have to do with senior citizens and or cancer patients. There's a video we did for GitHub, one of our other funders, where we got to meet a woman named Helen. When that water bill come out and it said over a thousand something dollars, I said, wow, what do I do now? Helen ended up in a nursing home for like eight or nine months. So she got home to this huge water bill because her toilet was running in the basement. Tiffany assisted in giving me some help, and that was a life-saving thing to me. You know, people paid a few hundred dollars and she got her water turned back on and we actually got to meet her and whatnot. And she was just so delighted about, you know, having people out there who cared, basically. I think that's what I love about every single story and every single donor that helps us out is that, you know, just by giving five, ten dollars or even more, whatever you're capable of, you can just show someone that somebody out there cares. It seems like an app that lets somebody realize that someone else out there cares is about as good as we can do on the internet these days. Do you think who you are and your experiences is part of why you were drawn to build an app like this and why you're good at it? I think, yes, that has a lot to do with it. I mean, I'll just go ahead and say it. I'm a black woman here in the United States of America. I'm 33 years old. And a lot of who we're helping, frankly, is a lot of other black people. A lot of women come through the system who um, who need help, basically. And it's highly motivating and rewarding to help people that look like you, basically, especially when they've been overlooked elsewise or elsewhere. And I think that actually is a really big draw for me, um, especially as far as using tech to help these women out. A lot of other companies just don't 
cater to that demographic. They're overlooked completely until they have, you know, the money to order, you know, from something to get delivered or whatever, or can use Uber or whatever. But otherwise, they're overlooked. And I think the work that we do is really trying to redress that, I think. When you were at Y Combinator, which helps fund and create a lot of startups, usually for profit, but in your case, nonprofit, uh, how many other black women were there? So in my batch, out of probably around 250 founders, there were two black women, and both of us ran nonprofits. Hmm. So you've shown a model of how you can take a specific problem and tackle it with a relatively straightforward set of technologies. This wasn't having to invent some new virtual reality thing. It's just you know, put your credit card in here and the money goes over there. It seems like most most nonprofits, if they just had the technology to be able to connect the people they're helping with the people that have the money, that would solve a lot of their issues. I think that sometimes because my background is so heavy in tech that I don't think of what we've done necessarily as being groundbreaking, but I've talked to other nonprofit founders and Sometimes just telling them the logistics of how our website works, for example, they look at me like I discovered fire. And I think like, <laughs> you know, it it does speak to the state of the use of technology in the nonprofit sector. I mean, a lot of people, you'll hear stories about like nonprofits using old computer equipment and stuff like that. And those are not false stories. But we kind of look at it as like technology is center, um, the cent- is central to what we do. And so we can't you know, do anything without it, basically, which some people would argue maybe is not good, but it allows us to help people much more quickly and much more efficiently. You know, we're we're kind of known in the community for helping people in a much faster way than you would get from other channels. Like if you applied for like state relief grants and stuff like that, like we help most people sometimes the same day they apply for assistance or within that week, depending on if it's like a Monday or something. And the biggest bottleneck, ironically, is government as far as like them verifying details that we need to just confirm that people owe certain amounts and whatnot. Technology could really be transformative to the nonprofit sector in a bunch of different ways. So now everybody who's listening is going to want to help these families in need through the human utility. How do they do that? Where do they go? What do we do? And what if I want to give you know, on an ongoing basis, not just pay one bill, but help people going forward? Yeah, I mean, so the donation process is super duper easy. All you do is go to humanutility.org or detroitwaterproject.org and you just put in your email address, your name, and, you know, maybe a reason why you're giving and whatnot and how much you actually want to give. And you can just give in less than two minutes. It's a super duper easy process. And if you want to keep giving, we have a program called the TAP, of course, um, where you can be become a recurring giver. And so whatever amount you choose during the donation process, that can come out of your come from your debit card or credit card every single month. And if people give every month, it's always going to go to whoever's most in need of having their water bills taken care of. Exactly. And so there's nothing you have to do ex- besides just, you know, donate your gift. You don't have to do anything as far as picking families and that kind of thing. It's just, it's designed to be a really easy process. And then we update you, you know, month by month as far as like who you've helped and, you know, the overall policy situation and that kind of thing. So it's a really cool program to be a part of. Tiffany, thank you. Thank you. We'll have more with Courtney Ziegler and Tiffany McKell, the creators of Appalachian, after the break. Welcome back to Function. I'm Anil Dash. Was bail set? Yes. How much was the bail? 3000 A lot of people just go to the ATM. 
but we're sitting in the poorest congressional district in the country. 85 to 90% of people can't make bail right out of arraignment. From what I know, you know, my mom told me she didn't have the money, and it, it was true, she didn't have the money. It was a lot for my mom. What they're being punished for is that they don't have enough money to make bail. That's their crime. That's a clip from the Khalif Browder story. Browder was charged with attempting to steal a backpack, a charge that was later dropped. But the thing is, Khalif ended up incarcerated for 33 months at Rikers Prison because neither he nor his family could make his bail of $3,000. Sounds like a small amount, but when you don't have it, you don't have it. And I did not have it. And I couldn't do anything. This was my child. They took my child from me, just snatched him off the street. Browder's story became a national headline, and Jay-Z got involved and started advocating for bail reform. And eventually that led to the Netflix documentary that was produced. But by that time, it was sort of too late for Khalif. He had ended his own life. Now, we can't ascribe these things to any one single cause, but there's no question that Khalif suffered enormously because of the physical and emotional abuse he endured being at Rikers. I'd had a chance not too long ago to sit down with a member of Khalif's family, and the thing you realize is it's not even just about this one person and the injustice of them sitting in jail. It affects their lives for the rest of their lives. It affects their families for the rest of their lives. And it has these effects that just undermine entire communities. It's stories just like this that I had in mind when we talked to Dr. Courtney Ziegler and Tiffany McKell. They created the Appalachian app because it's designed to help people just like this, folks who are stuck in prison only because they can't afford bail. At a tech level, Appalachian is kind of like Acorns. You sign up for the app, it connects to your bank account, and it automatically grabs the spare change out of your account and sends it over to Appalachian, who partners with the organizations that pay bail in each local community for anybody who can't afford it. Tiffany, can you give us some background on what's the problem with bail today? Absolutely. So one of the things that I'll start out by saying is that I am not an expert in bail, uh, the bail system at all. Um, I am a Black American. Because of that, my life has been intimately affected by mass incarceration. And so I come to understand how the bail system negatively impacts our community. Um, and so something like 60 percent um, of all the people that are in jail right now um, have not even been charged with a crime. Um, they're just awaiting trial and simply cannot afford bail. Um, and so what that means uh, is that if you are poor and innocent, um, you will, will sit in jail and your life can be ruined in a lot of ways. Um, so my background, I'm a software engineer by trade. Um, Courtney and I are tech entrepreneurs. And we are because we are also um, Black Americans and just people who care about the world around us, we're constantly thinking about how can we utilize technology uh, to solve problems that matter to us. And so Courtney um, actually uh, conceived the idea of abolition, and uh, it was one of those ideas that kind of took on a life of its own. So let's talk about that. Courtney, this, this is something that happened in a tweet. Yeah, um, well, I love Twitter. I also love the kind of the, the possibilities of Twitter being able to kind of test ideas to see if someone will like it or retweet. Um, and so I do that quite often. I was super inspired by the work of National Bailout, which is a collective of organizations, socially driven, um, mission-driven organizations that came together in 
2017 to do on the ground grassroots um, fundraising for bail, for black moms in particular, the Mother's Day bailout, Black Mama's bailout. Um, and so I had caught wind of that actually on Twitter um, and was yeah, super, and it was hugely successful. Yeah, they were they were super successful. They raised about a million dollars, um, and it was really a moment moment for me that I got to see kind of grassroots fundraising open up this larger conversation of crowdfunding for Black freedom, and I was super inspired. And like Tiffany said, um, we're tech entrepreneurs, and being in the space with access to resources and a little bit of access to time that others may not have, we wanted to leverage the popularity and the ease and simplicity of spare change technology. Um, and, and make it applicable to something so large as helping to fight mass incarceration by bailing folks out. And so I sent a tweet and got a lot of traction, a lot of retweets, a lot of like, I'd sign up for that. And so we're like, all right, let's go. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. So this is interesting because both of you, you're talking about you know, your connection to the criminal justice system, to the bail system is just as community members, right? This is sort of lived experience. So that's, but that's not your background. You're both technologists. And you sort of like real casual just said, you know, spare change technology that's a mind-bending concept. Talk to me about what that means. What does that phrase mean? It's a concept that isn't new. Um, a lot of banks actually have kind of save your change, like Bank of America, when, according to how you spend, right? Um, if you spend $1.50, that 50 cents goes into a savings account. There are other kind of technologies that leverage the idea of saving or investing your money um, to get more money. Um, but for me, it was like, okay, that model has already been proven. People have already kind of bought into the idea of that spare change it can be used to save and create something bigger. Um, and so it made sense, not a pun, but that's actually great. <laughs> it made sense to uh, use something, again, so something so simple, right? Um, and something that, ha again, that has been proven by other spaces um, and other projects and other ideas of saving. So it made sense and people kind of bought into it and they're still buying into it. And we sign up users every single day. We launched uh, last November 13th, 2017. We were hoping to have 200 users. We had over 10,000 signups at this point. So we are That's excited incredible. to be able to uh, raise uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, and bail hundreds of people out. Um, so we're doing that every day. Courtney and I consider ourselves social engineers. And I think what that means for us is that we're not always looking to build brand new technologies, um, but really kind of looking at existing technologies, existing models that have worked and figure out how we can apply those to really big problems that need multi-approach solutions. There are apps that'll, you know, put your move your couple of pennies over into your savings account and do some of this automation there. But most of them are oriented around personal finance and taking care of your own financial goals. Not as many of them are, are connected to some of the big social issues, some of the big cultural issues that we are all sort of focused on. There's, you know, there's not a lot that are sort of oriented towards justice, right? So is that the approach that you have is saying maybe the tech we need is mostly already out there and it's just a matter of applying it? Absolutely. For us, it's about who, uh, which users are actually centered. Our values from the beginning has really been to be really inclusive in both uh, our branding and our marketing and in our design of technology. So um, uh, Appalachian is a web app. It's not uh, native. Um, and that's intentional because we wanted anyone on any device to be able to access it from the day we launched. Um, small things like that. We make sure that we take better uh, care of just making sure that people who don't have a whole lot of money but want to contribute um, are able to do so in a really easy way. So I want to talk a little bit about the experience. So, you know, I signed up for Appalachian. I think right pretty much when it launched, like the first couple of days, and and I'd saw it and seen it all over my you know 
social media feeds and everything. And uh, for folks who haven't done it yet, and you all should, you go to the site, you put in, you create a normal account, you, you make your password and stuff, and then you put in your bank account info, which is a little bit of the the deep breath moment where you're like, okay, is this going to be okay? And then it's just sort of magic. Can you tell us what's happening behind the scenes as soon as I've, I finish that sign up, I put in my bank info, what are you all doing behind the scenes to make all this work? Yeah, uh, great question. So we have um, uh, definitely leveraged third-party tools. Uh, so we're a Plaid user, we're a Stripe user. Um, again, going back to... And these are services that help you connect to bank accounts and to payment systems. Absolutely, absolutely. So we can really focus on the hard problems that haven't been solved. Like how do we get this money to community bail funds across the country each and every month when they actually need it? How do we allow users to choose which organizations uh, across the country they want and which ca campaigns they want to donate to? Um, those are the problems that we focus on. And then we let the, the technical part of taking the money out of your bank account, um, the folks who are spend all of their time doing uh, fintech. And fintech is financial technology for people that are not in the know already. But so what you're talking about is you're taking this cutting edge of what's happening with everybody else building apps around money, transferring money and 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 being able to send it anywhere and you sort of build on top of these tools that are out there that that developers know, coders know, but that maybe ordinary folks don't know that that tool is there. Exactly. Um, and that was super fascinating I think when we launched that a lot of folks had to trust us. We actually uh did a study of our users to find out who they were and like where they were from and like um, why they wanted to participate. Um, and a lot of folks were uh, elders, um, folks who are not necessarily involved on social media and using different apps all the time. Um, and so it's very interesting for them to have been like, oh, I have to link a bank account. But because I think a lot of the users knew who I was and who Tiffany was and a kind of our portfolio of work, um, we had to you know, have gained trust in our users. Um, and so you're right. A lot of folks in the industry may know what Plaid is, which is um, a leading company that allows folks to um, access to bank accounts. People may not know what Stripe is, that it, it pretty much um, is used to do payouts by a number of companies. Um, but again, they had to trust us as people. <laughs> um, and then once, you know, once they started seeing um, Appalachian showing up on their bank account, people got excited and they would screenshot their contributions would still happen um, and screenshot how much they've raised and like tweet it and Facebook it. And then that gave us more legitimacy and more users were like, okay, this is a real something. It's, it really works. It's safe. And it's actually doing something really good. So talk to me about scale. Like if we talk about, it's been almost a year you've been running, uh, you've had all these people sign up. How, how many people have been impacted? What's the, what's the, you know, whether it's dollars or, or like people's lives, what, how do you all look at the impact in the world? Yeah, so um, although we launched uh, a year ago, uh, we've been live about seven months total. Um, so, so yeah, so as Courtney mentioned earlier, when we launched the app in uh, November of 2017, we started as a side project um, and has become a really big and important and amazing side project. Um, but we thought this was something that we were going to kind of do on the weekends, and we wanted to have 200 users um, by the end of the month. Uh, and by the end of that month, we had 2,000 users. And so in the beginning, we, again, we were um, uh, using, actually at that time, we were using a white-labeled solution um, that was really only built to handle a couple hundred users. I think it maxed out at about 500. Um, and so we were kind of... Uh, you blew past that right away. 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so we were kind of like, oh, no, we, we have to actually build this thing um, from scratch. And so it was really cool because it was a really good problem to have. Uh, and we were able to take all of that early feedback on like how how our earliest users wanted to talk about um, their contributions and share them across social platforms. And so we were able to kind of build a, a lot of that functionality in. So, yeah, in the first five months on that white labeled solution, uh, we you want to give the kind of numbers? We were able to, at this point, um, like Tiffany said, we were in seven months of operation. We took this past summer um, to pause the app because we couldn't handle demand. Um, there are two of us. We brought on a volunteer marketing director who's really, really awesome. Um, we brought on a social media person um, and someone to help us a little bit with customer support, but it's still mainly uh, Tiffany and myself. And so... In that seven months, we raised about $160,000 at this point um, through Spare Change alone, which is amazing. Um, wow. Yes, unbelievable. unbelievable. We're uh, generating $30,000 a month up until April 31st of this year. Um, and so as uh, if folks don't know, bail ranges across states from sometimes from $100, $1 to $100 to thousands of dollars. And some of the folks that we've definitely bailed out, um, their bail has ranged up from the hundreds to the thousands. Um, and so it, we've been able to bail out over 50 people, primarily, I think, black Americans, a lot of trans folks. Um, one story is really important. It was a trans um, person in solitary confinement um, who was sitting in jail um, in, in solitary confinement for months. Um, and through the work of abolitionists, which are our users, um, we were able to get them out and provide them support service post-incarceration, such as like housing, health uh, support, and things like that. And so in the amount of money we've raised and the amount of people we bailed out and the, uh, the kind of conversation we've helped to create um, in the tech space is really, really amazing. I think that with the success of abolition, a lot of folks who were very ignorant in our industry about what bail is and how it functions have been able to have a space where they've been educated, whether by signing up or just by intentionally being part of the online conversations and seeing the way abolition has moved through media. So it's made impact on the amount of money it's made, uh, the amount of people we've been able to bail out, and the amount of education that we've been able to create. That's unbelievable. So you know, you're talking about in less than a year over 50 people have been helped, not just bailed out, but in many cases to be able to sort of re-enter their life after going through the criminal justice system. Uh, that You're talking about m more than once a week this is happening now. Tell folks how they try it. How do, they sign, how do I sign up for Appalachian? What do I do to get started? Absolutely. So any device, uh, any browser, you can go to Appalachian, A-P-P-O-L-I-T-I-O-N dot U-S. Um, and all you have to do is have a, um, a bank account, any funding source. Actually, one of the things I, on, on Inversion 1, um, we had a very limited set of funding sources that um, were allowed on that first version. And we did quite a bit of work to make sure that um, we were able to include um, thousands more. So um, about 70 percent more funding sources uh, are now included uh, on Abolition. Um, so go ahead. The sign-up process takes just a few seconds. And then you can also uh, donate off app as well. Um, so we have quite a few people who just kind of go and sign up for uh, monthly uh, or weekly um, donation plans. And you can do that from our website as well. 
Yeah, that's what we started doing is I had shown my wife the screenshot of the dashboard and here's what we're giving. And she's like, why are we doing the pennies thing? Like, let's just go and <laughs> do it right. So it was nice. It was like the 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 on-ramp to being more thoughtful and mindful about, you know, how how we we uh, contribute. I got I got one last question, which is this seems like it's succeeded beyond what you had, you know, even imagined ever imagined why you had this little side project you're building. But if you look even more ambitiously out there as to what are the other ways that we could be connecting the tech that already exists without inventing anything and help other marginalized folks, all the people that are, you know, underrepresented and, and, and not really taken care of by current technologies? What are the things you see out there where we could apply tech that already exists and solve some of the harder problems around us? I think one of the really cool things about Appalachian is that it has really – so one of the things we talk about is the spending power of people of color in the United States. Um, and there's a lot of conversation around like how do we kind of leverage spending power uh, to address social social issues and how do we make philanthropy easy for everyday individuals. Um, and I think the model of abolition has um, really expanded possibilities around that conversation. So we're really excited to, in addition to addressing issues in mass incarceration, which are huge, um, and far-reaching, we want to address other issues uh, with a similar model of leveraging um, spending power. Um, and I think the other th really cool thing about abolition, and it's one of the reasons like we are really committed to building in public, is our process for building um, has been to always talk to the people who have the problem and talk to the people who um, are in the community and affected by the problem and ask them what do they want uh, and what could be cool. Uh, and then kind of um, look at the techno technology landscape at that time and figure out where the crossover is. Um, but I think it's always critical to start with the people who have the problem and just spend time there and the, the solutions will come up. Yeah. Before we try to figure out how to apply already existing technologies to problems, um, we need to talk to the people that we're trying to find the solutions for. And with Appalachian, even though it was a tweet that kind of like really was a catalyst for it being built, it was the work that others who were doing in the space um, and being able to talk to them and partner with them that really undergirded our work and, and allowed us to be super successful. So without us knowing and, and having an insight in, and having conversations with folks, um, before applying technology to it, I don't think we would have been as successful at all. And so I think it's important for everybody in our space and in our industry to be a little bit more aware um, of, the of the communities that we want to um, contribute to. Well, uh, Tiffany, Courtney, I, I think you have such a thoughtful and important perspective on what the tech we use can do. And I think... Not only is abolition important and, and the problem that you're, you're tackling important, but the way you're doing it and that it might inspire other people who know how to build, who make technology or who use these apps every day to start thinking about maybe we can apply these to more meaningful, substantive problems, maybe for the folks that aren't the usual suspects that get helped by most of these apps. Thank you both for uh, joining us on Function today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Anil. Well, I hope this episode of Function gives you some ideas of how to give back that you'll go check out Appalachian and Human Utility and maybe even start to give yourself. But there's a bigger lesson here too. You know, we talk a lot about how technology is designed or created. What's just as important is who is creating that technology. Because what you'll notice is the faces, the communities, the people that are not always represented in tech, 
when all of a sudden they're led into the room, when they're included in the conversation, they're solving a whole class of problems that's different than just all the other apps you hear about every day. That idea that technology can help the people who are most in need seems like the thing that got us all excited about technology in the first place. That's it for this episode of Function. Now, we gave you some ideas about how to give your money away this time out. New year, new me. We're also going to help you plan for how to manage your money in the year to come. Join us for an episode that is focused on apps that help you do right with your money next time on Function. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our associate producer is Maurice Cherry. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland. And big thanks to the entire team at Glitch. You can follow me on Twitter at Anil Dash. And of course, you can always check out Function at glitch.com function. So please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode.